Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast! Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Christine is a longtime special ed teacher in the St. Louis area. She remembers the day that her son, Zach, introduced her to his new girlfriend. Her name was Sarah. At this point, they had been dating a while, and Zach really liked her. Zach did tell me that she was a nurse. So I did like that. You you have to be a caring person to be a nurse. He told her other things, too. She lives in Illinois, and she loved dogs, just like me. You may hear one of them panting in the background here. I asked, well, how did you meet this girl? And then he said eHarmony, and I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) brother. But that skepticism disappeared when Sarah walked in the door one autumn day in 2008. She just had this bright smile, just her eyes kind of gleamed. She said she was working at a St. Louis hospital, at least for now. She wanted to work in the neonatal unit of Children's Hospital. She wanted to work with the preemie babies. She also said that she was a camp counselor at the MSD camp, summer camp, for kids with muscular dystrophy. As a teacher, Christine loved the way that Sarah was so dedicated to children. I thought, wow, this is a nice girl. At the time, Sarah was 23 years old. She was living back in her hometown, but commuting to St. Louis and dating Zach. Christine thought that they were getting serious quickly, too quickly, but she liked Sarah. Christine told us, by the way, that Zach preferred for his mom to tell this story. She got really close with me. We did shopping together, we did a lot of stuff together that you would do like with a daughter-in-law, you know, not maybe so much the girlfriend. And unlike what Sarah told Aaron Johnson, that her parents were doctors, or her college sweetmates, that she had leukemia, the story she told Christine seemed to be, at least at first, the truth. She said that she was really into skiing at Hidden Valley. But not heading to the Olympics. And she talked about her mom and dad. They got divorced when she was really young, and she did not ever want to be divorced. She made that clear. Her dad was a truck driver, so she never got to see him. 
Her dad was not in the picture much, but he did buy her a car while they were dating. She didn't seem to have a warm relationship with her mom. Zach didn't offer the greatest endorsement either. He described her as just cold. He used a a bad word. She would say, that's why I love you, because you're so kind and you're just the total opposite of my mom. The holidays came. We were baking Christmas cookies and she would talk about her mom almost nonstop and about how I'm the exact opposite of her mom. That December, she and Zach came over one evening and said they had some news. Everyone sat down in the living room on the sofa. She showed me her hand with this ring and a big old smile. I believe she started crying. Zach was recently divorced, and Christine was glad her son had found someone who made him happy. And most importantly, Sarah really seemed to care about Zach's kid, who was just a year old at the time. Zach had a brief marriage that didn't last, but the little boy that came out of it was the light of his grandmother's life. For Sarah, marrying Zach would be like instant motherhood. She really liked this little ready-made family that she had with Zach. They even sat for portraits, Sarah, Zach, and his son. For Christmas, and that's what she gave. She gave everybody pictures. I said, wow, Sarah, you put a lot of time and effort and spent a lot of money, you know, for Christmas this year. And she goes, (laughs) she goes, well, I haven't had a family for Christmas And I just wanted it to be special. So everything is wonderful. New Year's Eve is when things start to fall apart. New Year's Eve, Sarah told her fiance something about herself, that she'd been raped. For reasons he couldn't quite articulate to his mom, Zach was skeptical. Something about her story was just too implausible for him. He just said something seemed really off about it. And I don't know what it was, you know, he couldn't really tell me what exactly about it was off. I'm like, who lies about this? It has to be true. Nobody's going to lie about something like that. And then I'm thinking, poor Sarah was raped, you know? And uh, so he was like, I don't know. I said, I basically told him, don't ruin it. You know, she's a nice girl. The first week in January, 2009, he broke off the engagement. Everybody was mad at Zach. My dad, my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law. It was a really bad time for him because we were all like, how could you do this? And she's calling me and crying and I'm crying. And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with him. I was team Sarah all the way. And so was my mom and my dad. Oh, everybody was like, how could you do this to her? I mean, I really felt bad for Zach. He held his ground. He said, I'm telling you, there's something about her that's just not right. I'm Laura Beal. You're listening to Sympathy Pains. This is episode five, Truth. In February of 2009, Christine was still stinging from her son's broken engagement. She had come to already think of Sarah like a daughter-in-law, and now she was out of her life. But Sarah wasn't going to stay out of her life. Not by a long shot. Christine came home from work one afternoon and pulled a plain white envelope out of her mailbox. The return address was Sarah's. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard from her in a while. I wonder, you know, I had never received a piece of mail from her before. There was no note, but something was tucked inside. A picture of an ultrasound. Christine stared at the image in shock. Sarah was pregnant. And even if Sarah wasn't going to be her daughter-in-law, it didn't change the fact that this was her grandbaby. I immediately go to Zach. What? What's going on? What is this? He says, I don't think it's real. She's just upset that I broke up with her. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, you better marry her. He was adamant. He didn't believe her anymore about anything. She's just trying to use this so we get back together again. He goes, I don't think it's real. For the next few months, Christine and Sarah talked from time to time. That summer, Sarah said she was on vacation in Southern California. And she went into a labor early. And the baby was born as a preemie. I was heartbroken that this baby was born prematurely and is sitting there fighting for life. Sarah named the newborn Isabella, the name Zach had picked out if his son had been a girl. Isabella Christine. Her middle name was after Zach's mom. And Sarah started a blog to post updates on the baby. I'm looking at the blog all the time. There's pictures and there's like narratives that she wrote daily, like long narratives. I was hanging on to every word. Christine's parents and friends were glued to the blog too. The one person who wasn't was Zach. He wasn't even convinced there was a baby at all. Actually, he told his mom that he thought the snapshots were of different infants. I'm like, how can you say that? Being so far away was tearing Christine apart. She was my baby granddaughter, and I wanted to see her. I knew I probably couldn't hold her, but I wanted to see her, and I wanted to be there with her. She called Sarah. I just said, I'm leaving early in the morning um, and driving, and I said, I'll drive 24 hours straight through. Later that same night, Sarah called her back. And says, I have some horrible news for you. Isabella died in my arms tonight. She just couldn't fight any longer. It was like a bomb had just dropped on my head. I was devastated. Christine mourned for months. She couldn't even attend a funeral for little Isabella Christine because there wasn't one. She spent months grieving the granddaughter she never met. Christmas came around, and Christine found a card from Sarah in her mailbox and something else. Pictures of a baby, maybe six months old. And it says, Merry Christmas from Sarah, Adam, and Isabella. Another bomb hits me. She tried to reach Sarah in agony, but she didn't answer her messages. Was this her, Isabella? So then, fast forward the next Christmas, I get another Christmas collage, and it is a little girl, and it says again, Merry Christmas from Sarah, Adam, and Isabella. Christine, of course, had no idea that in 2007, the year before Zach even met Sarah, she had started a blog with a profile picture of herself looking hugely pregnant. She said she was a student nurse, married to the most wonderful man in the world named Adam. Staring at the picture on the Christmas card, Christine thought that the baby girl looked strikingly like her grandson. I'm like, oh my God, that is my granddaughter. She called Sarah again. This time, she answered. I'm like, what is going on? I thought you said the baby died. Sarah told her that the baby hadn't died, but she didn't want her to be raised by parents who weren't together like she'd been, that she'd met and married a guy who completed their family. I just, I begged her, I said, I don't have to be grandma. Can we meet at a park and just, like, I could just be your friend. You know, I just want to be in her life. It was sad. It was horrible. I mean, I'm almost crying now. Sarah never sent another card. It was like your heart is out there somewhere. Like part of your heart is out there somewhere and you have no idea. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. A few more years went by. In late summer 2017, Sarah started texting Christine again. The year before, in a parallel Sarah universe, she had risen from her power chair at Camp Summit, ridden off in a van. When Christine got the text from Sarah, she was sitting at a Mexican restaurant with her grandson and a couple of his friends. Just the four of us were there. We were waiting for our food. I just, I remember she just starts texting me, you know, how are you? That guy, I mean, there was some small talk before that. 
And she's like, are you still teaching? And then, of course, I said, yes, I'm still teaching. I'm fine. So how is Adam and Isabella? She said, well, I have some bad news. And then she texted that Isabella was killed in a car accident. Christine sat at the table, waiting for her food to arrive, stunned. She went through the rest of the meal in a daze. She had lost her only granddaughter, again. I said, can I see some pictures of her, you know, before the accident? And and so she sent lots of pictures. A day or two later, Sarah came over to Christine's house. She went straight to the couch. And then we just started hugging each other and crying. She told me all about, and we boo-hooed. Like her and I were hugging each other, just bawling, bawling. A couple more years passed with Christine carrying around a granddaughter-sized hole in her heart. Then in the spring of 2019, she got a text from her son. You're not going to believe this, but Sarah was on the Dr. Phil show. I just watched it. Told you guys. Nobody believed me. That night after work, Christine called up the links on YouTube. My, like, jaw was dropped the whole show. I could not believe what I was hearing. She was in my house telling me that my grandbaby died two times. And it was the first time I believed that I did not have a granddaughter. Christine was livid, wounded. She took my trust in people. At the same time, she felt like Sarah needed therapy. At the end of the show, it said that she was given a chance to go to some place to to go get some help. But even as Christine was watching the video on YouTube, Sarah had already left treatment and was back home. If Sarah wasn't going to stop on her own, there were now plenty of other people who were going to try to make her see the truth. Chris Conrad is a stocky middle-aged man with glasses and a high forehead. Today, he's the city manager in Highland, Illinois. We talked one day in his office on the first floor of City Hall, a building with the kind of gingerbread trim that looks more like a chalet you'd see in the Alps and not a small town in the Mississippi Valley. Highland was founded by Swiss immigrants. They are pretty proud of their Swiss heritage. Searcy, Switzerland is our sister city. Not a ton of controversy in Highland. The day we spoke, Chris was getting ready for the upcoming charity pie auction in the town square. Before he was city manager, he was police chief. And if you go all the way back to 2006, he was a beat cop. That was the year he got a call from the local FBI office about a woman and a stolen quilt. They asked that we reach out to her and and find out what was going on. Was there a part of you that thought the FBI is contacting me about a quilt? Well, you know, at this point, I'd been an officer for six years. And so I understood what theft by deception was. He went by her house and learned that she was away at college. Had to wait till the weekend when she was home, but then ended up bringing her, bringing her in, talking to her about the issue. She seemed nervous. I remember that. Seemed like any other college student that would be talking to an officer. <laughs> so I, I didn't necessarily think that was out of line. Sitting at the police station. She said this originally started as doing research for a school project on SMA, and that she was a nursing student, and that in doing that research, she started pretending to have it, and then created another persona on the chat room that she was the parent of a child that had it. She didn't really have didn't really have an excuse as to why she did it. She was embarrassed that she'd done it, seemed to acknowledge that it had gone too far. I remember thinking as I was talking to her that she was a little socially awkward. I'm not a psychologist, but I remember thinking to myself that it was probably she enjoyed the attention that came from it. They didn't press charges, 
but he told her he was going to call the college and tell them she needed a referral for counseling. That day, he sent an email to Andrea Smith, the computer whiz who'd found out that Sarah was lying. He told Andrea that he'd called a former teacher of hers, and he'd learned, as he wrote to Andrea, Sarah was always slightly different and never really fit in with any particular crowd, just had a lot of problems socially. He also said he was going to speak with Sarah's mom about, as he called it, issues that needed to be addressed professionally. I don't know if this was the first time someone said Sarah needed treatment, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. And I don't know how her mom reacted to the advice. Mental health issues come with such stigma that people are often afraid to acknowledge a problem exists, even to themselves, especially in a small town where you can't easily fade into anonymity. Even when people do seek therapy, they often face a shortage of providers or insurance that views mental health coverage as some kind of luxury. The fact that Sarah didn't get treatment right then and there isn't all that surprising. In a given year, more than half of adults experiencing mental illness won't receive care for it. Back in South Carolina, Andrea was thrilled to get the quilt back. I sent an email out to the SMA support chat and asked everybody to write a little thank you note to Officer Conrad and send pictures of the kids, send them to me, and I put together a big box and sent it to him. So in 2019, when Andrea teamed up with Liz and Bethany, she knew who she was going to call. By then, Officer Conrad had been promoted to Chief Conrad. He referred Andrea to a member of his force. Patrolman David Brines, I'm with the Highland Police Department. Tall and friendly, he's been a policeman for about 13 years. Came down to this area for college and liked the area, so just happened to stay. He was named Officer of the Year once by the local Optimists Club. By the time he talked to Andrea, David Brines already knew about Sarah. He'd been getting calls from Liz and Bethany. To investigate, he obtained records from the Young Survival Coalition, the breast cancer charity that had sponsored the bike ride where she met Liz. I found out that the bike had been donated to her, so at that point we realized that we did have a fraud. But the crime was out of state, out of his local jurisdiction. So in the summer of 2019, he called the FBI. Investigators discovered another stolen bike. Sarah had ordered a bicycle off of eBay, and the bicycle was worth several thousand dollars. It was sent through the Postal Service after she ordered it in February. But she told the seller it never arrived and got her money back. In doing so, she committed mail fraud. At that point, we had a federal crime. The case was now in the hands of a federal prosecutor. Luke Weisler. I am an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of Illinois. I've been in this office for about two years. Before that, I was in private practice for about six years. Luke is a young guy, late 30s, who coaches the basketball and soccer teams of his three young boys. He grew up in Springfield, Missouri, the youngest of four, where his dad was a pharmacist and his mother was a teacher. He himself taught middle school math for two years in the Rio Grande Valley before he went to law school. It was in law school that he heard a federal prosecutor talk about how his job protects people. It inspired him. Every day here, I am pushed to do the right thing for the right reasons. And so, you know, this is a, a job where uh, I feel like I can really make a difference. And, and that's, that's why I'm here. He specializes in white-collar crimes, corruption, money laundering, identity theft. Now that I, I've been in this job for a little while, I am more keenly aware of just the amount of fraud that, that takes place in the world. Being a, a part of the way to confront that and the way to, to resolve it for people is a really big deal because it, it is something that has a tremendous impact on people's lives. But he'd never heard of a case quite like the one that landed on his desk in July of 2019. The head of the fraud unit came into his office and said, you know, there's, there's a new case that I want you to handle. There's a, a woman who has faked breast cancer 
and muscular dystrophy uh, has most likely defrauded some nonprofits. You mentioned that that she had largely confessed to, to the conduct on national television. I think my reaction was probably the same as, as most people that first hear about this case. There's just kind of disbelief about what happened. He started looking into the evidence that FBI agents and postal inspectors had gathered. When you really think about what it takes to commit that fraud, that she actually went to a camp, actually allowed counselors at that camp to bathe her, to feed her. I mean, to, to for those counselors to learn after the fact that she was capable of doing all of those things on her own, that is just devastating. It went from a case that, I guess on its face, just had some bizarre details into a case that was really worth pursuing. He'd seen his share of Medicare scams and fake GoFundMe accounts. This was different. I don't believe that her her primary or sole objective anyway was just to obtain money. In most of our cases, that is the sole objective. And it's the sole objective on usually a, a pretty grand scale. Hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars are usually at stake. This was not the case here. You know, based purely on dollars, it almost wouldn't be a federal case. The law says that you can't physically hurt another person and you can't take their money, but you can take their trust, their love, their faith in people and crush it. Luke saw that Sarah seemed to choose communities and people who were the most vulnerable and the most giving. They're not going to question if somebody's in a wheelchair, whether or not that person can walk. You know, if somebody is going to have the appearance of having gone through chemotherapy, they're not going to question that. And she exploited that empathy that they have. The emotional harm here dwarfed what the financial harm was. Something else nagged at him, too. He walked me through her biggest crime in the eyes of the law, stealing the bike she ordered off eBay. It was worth more than $4,000. So she used her mom's credit card to order it. She received that bicycle and then claimed that she didn't. So she disputed the transaction when, when she actually did receive the bike and, and was ultimately reimbursed for that money. What really bothered him more than what she did was when she did it. She was on Dr. Phil in April of 2019. May of 2019 is when that dispute occurred on the, the credit card. After she was on Dr. Phil vowing to do whatever it took to change her life, she stole a bicycle. And after Dr. Phil, she signed up for a charity swim event, putting her back in the midst of the kind of people she had a history of lying to. Luke couldn't force Sarah to get help, but he could do something to protect more people from getting hurt. This was something that she wasn't going to be deterred from doing without some sort of intervention beyond what had been done to that point. And what had been done at that point was significant. She was somebody that, that wasn't going to be deterred without prosecution. By December of 2019, I had already met Liz and Bethany. I knew the feds were investigating. So I sent Sarah a text and asked her if she would speak with me. She answered, I'm not interested in doing a story. I've been working to put this behind me. The next day, I asked her if she would reconsider, telling her I wanted to hear her context, explanation, regrets, anything that would help me understand what she'd done. She wrote back, it's in the past and nothing positive will come from rehashing the past. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. For over a year, I've reached out to Sarah, Sarah's former classmates, and members of her family. Few of them responded, and none would go on tape. One former friend told me she felt bad for Sarah's family and didn't want to seem like she was piling on. Highland is a small town. People talk. I flipped through old yearbooks from Highland High School, hoping images of the teenage Sarah might offer hints to the adult she would become. As a junior, she joined a health promotion group called Lifesavers and was cast in a production of The Wizard of Oz. The last page of her senior yearbook shows a photo of her walking across the stage at graduation, grinning, shaking hands with a school board member. She looks like any other graduate in a cap and gown, ready to go into the world. 
zoom in on the photo and you can see that her right ankle is strapped into a fracture boot. All of us are products of where we come from, but from the outside, it's hard to know what goes on inside a family. Sarah's aunt, the one who spoke with Liz and Brian Hickox, exchanged polite text messages with me, but didn't want to speak on the phone. She told me Sarah's not a mean person, just a young woman who wanted to be loved and accepted. She wrote that Sarah didn't have enough self-worth to believe that she could make friends by just being herself. What Sarah really needed, her aunt said, was family. She wanted what her cousins had, she wrote. Families to have fun and spend time together, care for one another, travel together, and build dreams. Reading this reminded me that in Sarah's make-believe personas, she often seemed to borrow the names of her cousins and her cousin's children, as if they had something she did not. If her family wouldn't help me understand Sarah, I turned to someone else who might. Well, I see people with mood disorders And I also see people who have factitious disorder, and factitious disorder is the broad term to describe people who have Munchausen syndrome. Dr. Stuart Eisendrath is on the psychiatry faculty at the University of California in San Francisco. Dr. Eisendrath spoke with me with one big caveat. He wanted it to be clear that he hasn't examined or diagnosed Sarah and that his comments are based on his three decades of experience with something called Munchausen syndrome. The description of Munchausen sounds familiar. It's basically where a person creates signs or symptoms of a physical illness uh, for purposes of being in the sick role. It isn't somebody who creates uh, signs or symptoms of illness in order to achieve some goals such as a monetary award. Rather, they do it because they want to be in the patient role and whatever benefits go along with that. He wasn't surprised to learn that Sarah had been a nurse. In general, people with factitious disorder, 50% or more have been involved with the healthcare system. But the most common thing is a nurse or nurse's aide. Our speculation is that the people go into uh, the healthcare fields because they want to help take care of other people. They want to get care for themselves as well. They oscillate often between being in a caregiving role and being a caregiving recipient. In doing so, they may be searching for something they're not getting at home. They may recreate, say, some family dynamics where they're getting a second family, as it were. I don't want to oversimplify, but it's like they're seeking a sort of family-nurturing relationship. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly it. Or it can be a reaction to genuine medical trauma from the past. They might try to, in a sense, recreate it because this time they know they're in control of it when in the original episode, they weren't. Whatever the reason behind the behavior, Dr. Eisendrath says there's one commonality, a disregard for its impact on others. They're often what we call sociopathic. They don't have any empathy for the people around them. So they may be quite cruel to the people around them, but they're not concerned about that. They're only concerned about what they're what they're getting from the situation. They may be aware that it's antisocial or pathological, but they rationalize it, saying that to themselves, this is what they need to do in order to get their needs met. Sometimes the motive is deliberate control of another person's feelings. One dynamic might be that the patient is trying to provoke anger in the people around him or her. Or humiliation. It may be humiliating because that's the issue. That's the kind of traumatic situation that the patient is working around, that they were humiliated as a child or as a 
young adult, and that they recreate this situation with other people. I, I think I've just always assumed that the motive was to get attention and support, but what you're saying is we can't make that assumption. It's a common factor getting attention and support, but it's definitely not the only factor. Does everyone who has this need psychotherapy to stop or can they just decide, I don't want to live this way anymore and I'm not going to do it? In my experience, it's very unusual for somebody to stop on their own. And this psychotherapy, is it lifelong? Is it something that, you know, you pretty much just have to keep treating it and keep treating it so it doesn't control your life? Yes, it's basically very long term and requires rigorous attention over time. When you're dealing with Munchausen, they have a very severe condition that is like stage four cancer. And they deserve support, not for what the person is portraying themselves as, but for the condition that causes them to portray it in the first place. So instead of feeling sorry for them for they have because they have cancer, it's really recognizing they have a factitious disorder and they need treatment for that. Sarah thought she had to move through the world as someone else, someone who needed help, someone with a disability. The tragedy is she probably did have a disability, just an invisible one, not one that people can easily recognize and feel sympathy for, also one extraordinarily difficult for her and her family to face. During one phone conversation with Liz, she told me something surprising, that she and Brian had driven halfway across the country from their home in Rhode Island to Illinois. I had to see her. I had to see who she was in her element. And we found her address. And we drove around her town and we went to her coffee shop and we saw all the places where she would go. We sat in front of her house. She came out of her house and both of us were just completely breathless at that moment. It was like our heart stopped seeing her walk out of her house, get in her car with her license plate and her personal plate and go about her life. And we followed her for a bit. So you drove all the way from Rhode Island to Illinois just to lay eyes on her. We did. I mean, to somebody listening to this might think, wow, that is just over the top. This was just kind of closure, if you will, in seeing her. Liz wanted to see Sarah, the real Sarah, at home. She felt like she couldn't put this behind her unless she figured out who Sarah really was. In some ways, I didn't blame her. I'd been wanting to understand Sarah, too. Looking for clues, my mind kept going back to something that Bethany told me. The one thing that I've never heard her lie about, she's lied about everything else from cousins, nephews, husbands, you know, dead relatives, kids, whatever. Anytime I asked her about her father, she shut it down. And she said, no, he left when I was little. And that was it. So I asked Officer Brines in Highland if he knew anything about Sarah's father. I did look for it, but I was I wasn't able to find anything of a, any sort of father figure for her. So even you couldn't find like even a name of who he was? I kept looking, thinking her dad might provide a clue to what her life was missing. I learned his name is Dave, and he lives in a tiny town on Route 66, less than an hour from Highland. Laura, this is Dave DeLashford, returning your call over your letter about Sarah. That's next on the final episode of Sympathy Pains. Sympathy Pains is a production of Neon Hum Media and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Laura Beal. I wrote and reported the episodes. Natalie Rin is the lead producer. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Associate producer is Rufaro Mazarura. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Fact checker is Jacqueline Coletti. Jesse Perlstein composed the theme song and music heard throughout the series. Additional tracks are by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Scott Somerville is our engineer and sound designer. Special thanks to Stephanie Serrano. From iHeartRadio, special thanks to Carrie Lieberman and Beth Ann Macaluso. 
Executive producer at iHeartRadio is Dylan Fagan. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Alliance on Mental Illness at 800-950-6264. That's 800-950-NAMI. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.